And really, it's just about the gaps, like teaching guys how to communicate, teaching guys how to share about themselves. It's amazing when people can talk to one another and you understand the shared experience that this whole thing is. And what ends up happening is guys find a lot of commonality amongst themselves, which ultimately helps you win and builds trust. Welcome to Slapping Glass, where we explore basketball's best ideas, strategies, and coaches from around the world. Today, we're excited to welcome the head men's basketball coach for Southern Utah, Todd Simon. Coach Simon is here today to discuss efficient and fast-paced practices, teaching cutting around the pick and roll, and we talk paint touches and icing ball screens during the always fun start, sub, or sit. Coaches looking to both support the podcast as well as connect and learn from other coaches around the world. Becoming a member of SG Plus does both. Check out slappingglass.com for yearly, monthly, and staff rates and get complete access to thousands of hours of curated and topical X and O and leadership content. Thanks for the support. We hope to see you there. And now, please enjoy our conversation with Coach Todd Simon. Coach, thanks so much for making the time to talk to us. We're looking forward to getting to a lot of stuff with you today. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's uh, absolutely a pleasure to be on and love all the content. Love what you guys do. Appreciate that, Coach. Thank you. To dive in right away, we'd like to start just with what a great practice looks like. So from your standpoint, when you're thinking about devising a practice in the preseason, what does that look like for you? Well, I like to work backwards. What is our identity going to be and how are we going to win a championship? Let's build our practice and our drills backwards from there. You know, for us, we want toughness. We want to be competitive. We want to put competitiveness in every drill. We want to do all the attitude and effort things that we can control and make them a factor in every drill that we do. So we're building our culture built into these first practices and all of our practices, but especially these first ones, you know, that we want to go heavy on establishing our identity first, and then we'll hash out the details later. But that's kind of the, the priority as we go through these first few practices. Coach, getting to establishing an identity, how do you specifically look at trying to establish that identity? Yeah, so a big thing for us, we want to establish the level of juice that we're demanding. We want guys to be energy givers and drills. While I have an excellent staff and let's say we're doing guards and bigs, I'm stalking the floor to make sure guys are gassed up. We need that guy that's clapping in the line when he doesn't have the ball. Like you're not just waiting for your next rep. You're an active participant in practice. If you got three guys ahead of you on a tossback drill, you can be doing something to raise the level of the team. You know, so I'm coaching all of that because that's what's going to matter for us. We're coaching guys, picking guys up off the floor. If a guy gets on the floor, everyone's picking them up and it better be a sprint. Everything about our program is accountability. You know, anything five on five, we're statting, we're charting rebounds and get back attempts. We're charting defensive efforts coming out of stance, you name it. And that stuff's getting posted the next day. And there's going to be an accountability if you're not at the standard that we set. And so in every single thing that we do, the guys know there's an accountability and it's being rewatched. And they're going to see it the next day on iPads and MacBooks on the sideline. And then they're going to see it on numbers on the dry erase board. And then they're going to see it with whatever it is running or whatever we're going to do to start the day to get you to that standard that we set. And so that's a big part of how we organize our practice. And then guys kind of race that level that of expectation. You know, no one's floating through because they know if you float through and take a few plays off, it's not slipping through the cracks. So that accountability is built in. You know, we get from drill to drill fast. You know, if it's not fast enough, we learn how to get there faster. But we have a lot of fun in the process. Like we have a lighthearted group. I want basketball to still be fun, but we're just going to do it in a way that, you know, there's no time to sulk or pout or focus on the last play. And that's kind of our style of play as well. It all kind of ties in because we want to play fast and be able to emotionally move on quick so that we can think clearly as we're playing, you know, sometimes 10 second offense. So it all kind of ties in. Coach, when building this identity and you mentioned toughness, Actually, before we came on the air, me and Dan were talking about 
doing drills that maybe help build your identity or culture, but don't necessarily have like great game transference or aren't like specifically designed for the five on five game. Do you have drills where maybe they don't necessarily make sense for the five on five game, but help establish, like you said, your culture, your identity? There's two categories of toughness, maybe really three, in my opinion. You have the physical toughness. That's learning how to take a charge. You know, we'll do a charge drill where you run through and take 17 charges in three minutes, type of thing, or whatever. That's one thing. Diving on a floor, learning how to dive, learning how to give up your body for the team, taking a wall up on a dribble drive and getting your hands back and feeling it through your chest. Like that's a physical toughness, right? Or blocking out or crack down on a help and fill. There's the physical toughness. And then there's the emotional toughness that required to play this game. Right. So we'll train that. We'll pick on guys. We have a couple guys, all league guys that we haven't given a call in practice in two, three years because we know it bothers them. Yeah. And we know it bothers them in the game. They'll be on the wrong end of every single call they're a part of because we know we have to condition that response that they're moving on. We know peer pressure drills, you know, does a three man weave from half court reach a certain number in two minutes apply to the game? Will we ever run that? Never in a million years. It doesn't apply. But what it is, is a peer pressure drill. You need everybody, all 15 guys to be able to perform at a high level, not fumble a ball in order to get the high standard that we set. So it's a peer pressure drill where every day they feel like you're getting a little closer, a little closer, and you achieve that. That's a camaraderie deal. That's building the wholeness of the group. So we'll always have a whole category of peer pressure drills, usually something timed or a number to get, you know, our perfect passes or perfect, you know, looking for, for perfection. That's more of a team building, camaraderie building. Everybody needs to do their part type of drill. So we have those peer pressure drills, which I think really are part of building your team emotional toughness. There's a lot of disadvantage drills. We'll do a lot of stuff for five on four scramble, four on four transition scramble, team goofs up or somebody doesn't execute a play, turnover, other team gets it. You know, we'll do a lot of two minute 30 games, for example, yesterday, two minute 30 games, best of seven series, one turnover, you take the L. So you might do everything right, be up by 10 with 10 seconds left, you turn the ball over, it's a loss no matter what. So we're building that toughness into those different categories, but we try to just instill that in our team. Coach, I'd like to just hit quick on that two minute 30 drill. Expand upon that. So if there's any turnover, that team's an automatic loss and then you're going on to the next game. Yeah, we'll do that a lot. You know, obviously our turnover numbers are very good every year. You know, there's something we're fanatical about. It just guys start to learn the game. So, you know, really simulating the end of a game, 230 left. And, you know, our old guards are kind of figuring it out. I got a lead seven to two, you know, yesterday, literally this exact scenario and they're ahead. Our older guard on the sideline who's not in is saying, keep the ball in the middle floor, get a late high ball screen, get a shot attempt. You're going to win this game. You're going to be fine. Just don't turn it over. You know, young guys on the floor, they do a high risk middle of floor elbow entry, gets poked away. Other team gets the ball, ball game, it's over. You know, and that's so it's simulating really end game situations. I don't think anyone in the country does more end game situations and just different scenarios than we do. We're fanatical about it because so many games come down to one to three possessions. You know, we just feel like if we can get in those scenarios that we're going to be okay at the end. Which besides that, those two minute 30 games for end of game situations, like you said, you're fanatical about. What else do you do to prep your team to be prepared for late game stuff? We just have an entire list of every situation, you know, whether it be opponent has to miss a free throw or we're late violating 100% of the time or we have ball out of bounds one second left under opponent's basket like we're going to figure our way we've done all kinds of different things or you know we've messed around with how much time on the clock we'll experiment how much time on the clock can we heave a 40 footer up in the air just to burn time hope it hits the rim and make sure they don't get a good shot coming back the other way or missing free throws or how we miss how we foul and all those things that pay dividends over the years we can literally point to games and say hey you know we taught lower body fouling and got away with a couple steals at the end of a cit game that were clearly fouls officials kind of looking upper body and we get a couple steals and all of a sudden we win that game you know just little things or our free throw rebounding situations tap backs you know we've won games doing those types of things. So we really value it. And then we have film now over the last five years to say, hey, you guys think this is goofy to work on? Let me show you why it's not. You know, sure. You know, we want to win the tip. We chart winning the tip. You know, we want to do all kinds of stuff like that. So we're just trying to look for any advantage we can because that's what coaching is. Can you explain how you teach guys to miss free throws so that in like in that situation where you need to get the rebound, like what you're practicing there? 
we want a high miss. What you're really trying to do is create enough time. So we really work on our free throw rebounding, right? We X and do all that stuff, spin back, and we audition guys, and they go every time. If you don't go, there's a repercussion, you know, so never on a film where you'll see one of our guys just stand there. You know, we're always going to give an effort. So we audition those spots. We want our shooter to get a high miss because we feel like if you can get a high miss, it's going to get a nice little bounce. You know, that direct line deal you see all the time that sometimes misses the rim or whatever. You don't really have a feel where it's going to go. If you can just get that ball high, it's going to bounce high. And now it's anyone's game. Now we think our two guys can get a hand on that ball. We just need a little bit of time. And we're always trying to go high miss and let dust fall. The referees don't want to call that foul. Sure. It just becomes a rugby scrum. And we think we're going to win the rugby scrum. Speaking of fouling, you mentioned teaching lower body fouling. What does that entail? We're just saying like, you know, press break guards breaking at the corner. We're just telling our guards, show your hands, but lower body, like, you know, straddle that leg, you know, get into those legs, almost just being low and, and physical. And if we get a foul call, if the clock stop, it's no harm, no foul in, the, in those situations from a scheme standpoint. So we're just trying to be physical. And a lot of times if you're showing your hands in the upper body, but you're just literally backpacking them or whatever, you know, guards, their natural thing is to push off and they see your hands up. We'll get those push off calls too. So we work on our following to be strategic with it a little bit. Coach, kind of going back to the practice a little bit, if someone were to walk into your gym taking a look around at what was there in your perfect scenario, what would the volume level of a practice sound like as far as the voices that people would hear in your practice? Is it mostly you? Is it a lot of your assistants? Is it your leaders on your team? Like what would someone hear in one of your practices? It's loud. I'm a big energy guy. Our practice is full of juice. We want guys yelling, screaming. I want our guards yelling down at the bigs during breakdown. Our bigs yelling at the guards, you know, they're not going hard enough. You know, we're getting work done over here. You know, it's, so I like that banter. You know, there's a lot of talk. In the middle of our drills or if we're in shell, there's a lot of people talking. Everybody's on the floor is talking. We'll stand an assistant at half court facing the opposite of the drill and say, okay, who can't you hear on the floor? If he can't recognize your voice, mm -hmm. it's not enough. Between plays, it's kind of my time, you know, and that's where I'll jump in and, and do what we need to do to get to the standard. But once the action turns on or off the sideline, you know, our assistants are great. You have to be an interpreter. Well, you have to interpret what I say. We usually have to make sure that it got through clearly to that player. So it's not an emotion or not getting clouded. So, you know, they do a great job. But once the action's going, I mean, everyone's got something they're looking at, you know, whether it's, hey, this guy's got the big, this guy's got the wing, this guy's talking about ball pressure, you know, and everyone's kind of found their little niche or identity. This guy's worried about talking and it's just chaos. Yeah. You know, when people come in and see energy, we've had people kind of poke their head in the arena, there's classrooms kind of around there, like, what's going on down there? You know, guys <laughs> are being loud. And that's what we take pride. Staying on that same theme of energy, how do you maintain the energy throughout, say, an hour and a half, two-hour practice, specifically like transitioning between drills, you know, water breaks, things like that, where maybe things can slow down, but how do you keep the juice flowing? We get from one place to the next. You know, now it's part of our culture. The old guys know, they tell the young guys, now we don't walk it down. You know, you better run to that next spot. Otherwise, we will work on that. Right. <laughs> like I tell them, all I do is prescribe exercises. Here's what our goal is. Here's what winning is. If we struggle to get from one drill to the next, let's work on that. That usually entails running, right? And that's not as fun as competing. You know, you go through walls of seasons and all that stuff. But last year was special for us. I don't think we had one bad practice. And we went a month between Division One games. But I think it has a lot to do with the character of some of the guys that we have. Other years, you'll lay an egg yeah. every so often. We didn't really have that. And we don't have that with this group because our older guys enjoy practice. I and mean, we compete a lot. We probably play a significant more five-on-five. Five. The older and longer I've been doing this, the less drills we do. Okay. Every time it's, okay, how can I build this scenario into five-on-five? Five? Okay, we need to work on middle ball screens. Let's just do this in some sort of five-on-five five competition. Let's not do it as a breakdown. And so we try to just build more stuff into competing. And our guys like to play. Every time they're like, let's play longer. I'm like, no, the guys, there's something that's called care hours. Like, we can't just stay here all day. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, so, but that's really helped us with playing and playing five-on-five five a lot. Within playing five on five, and you mentioned it a little bit, it's how you'll try to teach, but how you also balance the competitiveness to make sure what you want to teach gets accomplished or what you want to work on gets done. And not that the guys are competitive, it's great, but we've lost focus of what we 
wanted to try to accomplish with this five on five segment? We'll stop it a lot, especially early season. You know, there's nothing worse for a player that to play five and five and haven't stopped after every play. So then guys start coaching each other. But we also, you know, we have bricks. We don't like something. A guy gets a bad closeout, next man up, and then we got a little brick drill on the sideline and correct the behavior, and then we go back in, right? It's just kind of an old school way, yeah. but it's a way for us like, hey, is it painful to do a minute of slides with bricks? No, it's not that big of a deal. But it's kind of like, no, you don't get to play right now. Everyone else gets to play that's doing it the right way. We figure out ways like that where we can still get the message across of what our accountability is but also be able to keep playing because that competitiveness and simulating that speed of the game, you know, you sit there as a coach and say, how can we simulate the game? How can we simulate this drill, simulate what we want to work on and get enough reps. And finally, just like just doing it, just playing the game. Yeah. So we have about every type of action that we could possibly see small and big cross screen, flare screens, pin downs, whatever it is we're going to see, we probably have in our offense and we'll work on it within our offense but most of it for a defensive emphasis. For two, three weeks, we worked on doing stuff that we don't necessarily do versus, you know, icing the side offensively, but we wanted to be able to work on it. What we'll do will be a little bit differently, but that's kind of how we work on stuff is try to do it in the context of five and five. Coach, within, you said, doing less drills and more playing. I'm curious, how quickly do you try to get into playing you know, how many will you do to warm up? Will you do a couple of drills before you get into playing? And then how long are your practices usually going to go? Are you going five on five for an hour, five on five for 40 minutes? You know, what kind of is the breakdown there? We do skill work every day and we'll do it on day 100. We'll do it day before championship. You know, we're going to do guards and bigs breakdown. We're going to do ball handling. You know, we'll start out with eight minutes of ball handling every day, which rotates. All the coaches kind of take a different segment. We're going to do guard big breakdown every day with something specific that they're working on. We're going to, that's going to happen. You know, we're going to have our usually another skill segment, usually our, our offensive shots, you know, with our triggers or, or something that's in our sets. We'll get we'll get shots up, you know, so that part of practice is, is set. You know, we'll hit on some sort of transition defense. We'll hit some sort of defensive shell we'll touch on a lot of times. And then we're into whether it be five on five. I hate five on no. It's a necessary evil. But like, for example, we've been doing we'll go five on O to five on five the other end. We'll immediately try to show here's why we're doing what we're doing. Now there's actually live bodies and this is how it's going to feel. So we'll do that. Then we'll do a whole bunch of different versions of five and five. It's not just kind of throw the ball up. It might be two minute games or four minute games. It might be three trips or five trips or it might be innings. We might do a lot of conditions or defensive scoring or 10 second shot clock. And depending on what our emphasis is or what we're trying to work on in that context, we'll adjust what that competition level is. We did a couple of drills a couple of weeks ago where literally just kind of working on some portions of our defense. And I was like, it felt weird to do something that wasn't scored or competitive, yeah. Yeah. you know, or there wasn't a clock. And it just kind of dawned on us like majority of our stuff either has a clock or it's competitive in some nature. When you do the 10 second shot clock games, I mean, I'm sure multiple goals, but what usually is kind of the goal of going 10 second shot clock? For example, we will do some things like we did yesterday. We did three trips. So we'll run our offensive set versus defense. And then we'll tell the offense, hey, you don't have to take the ball out of bounds. Just you get it on net, or if they miss, you're getting it, and we're going because we're working on transition defense. Okay. So the one side's getting a transition defense, but we're a high tempo team. So it's basically we got to get to our X's. We got to get to the corners. We got to get wide, get to our spots, and run one of our transitions quickly. And we need to get a shot in the paint or catch and shoot three in that first 10 seconds. You know, we got to get a good one quick. So it's just an emphasis on both sides of the ball. And then we'll come back and play a regular shot clock on the other end of the floor. And then we'll flip-flop in and kind of do that type of thing. But it's also a way to say, hey, we're going to play fast. But as you still, after playing fast on one end of the floor, you still have to get back on defense again. Mm-hmm. And you might sit on defense for 25 seconds against, you know, there's teams that play end of shot clock every possession, every game in college basketball, which is hideous to watch. But <laughs> it's their identity. And so we have to be ready for that. And so we really work on being able to play both fast and slow. If you had a preference, you could practice at any time of the day. What have you found over your career is the best time of the day to practice and get good energy out of the guys and the team? So we go noon to three right now, which I absolutely love. We've done morning practices in the past, which I don't love, mainly because college kids don't go to bed at 
nine because they got to get up at six. They go right. to bed at one and get up at six. <laughs> right. So I've just kind of learned I'm a little more practical. Yeah, there's some mental, physical toughness, but we've kind of eliminated most of our morning stuff and just said, hey, I'd rather them recharge their bodies than wear that badge of honor. I really like that noon to three slot kind of classes in the morning. They lift afterwards. You know, we have life skills after that or team meetings or study hall or whatever, and they still get to be regular college students after five, Yeah, which I value. I still think there's a huge component to this thing that people overlook, which is the want to and the desire to. And I just believe, and I've seen it with teams in the past, kind of coming up through this thing where by January 15, coaches are gung-ho and we're making practice plans, doing this whole thing. But behind the curtain, the players just want it over. Yeah, They just want the season done. And so there's no point in that. So this needs to still have an element of fun. This needs to have an element of keeping guys fresh and wanting to be good. We don't go three hours. I used to, but we won't. We never go more than three days in a row if we can avoid it. We'll go, you know, three on, day off, two on, day off, you know. Mental recovery days, guy isn't feeling it that day. If I can't get you right in 100 practices over the course of the year, then that's on me. If you need a day, I'd rather have you have that day and be back fresh than turn one day into five days of not wanting to be there. So we've really kind of taken a progressive mental health approach to how we do things. You know, it's a little bit of an adjustment, especially when new staff, new players, transfers come in. They're like, what in the world is this? Where's he today? It's not what our concern is. You worry about your concern is, you know, given everything you have that day, in next man up mentality and getting your reps in. So it's become good. I think it's simulated what real life is now. Coach, just on that mental health day, my first question, have you found by giving it that your athletes aren't taking advantage of it? And then when someone says they need a mental health date, are you asking any follow-up questions or are you kind of controlling it at all? Are you saying, okay, I got you. Let me know tomorrow. Yeah, no, I mean, we just talk about it up front. And it's a little bit different because we talk and touch our guys every day. Our arrangement, our, our setup is pretty open relationships. So I talk to guys and, and usually have a pretty good pulse on who's up, who's down, or what's going on in their lives, at least to a little bit of a degree. So usually you can kind of see some things coming or kind of ask how they're doing. So I, I try to be in tune with all that. It's one of the reasons I really love the college game and, and I really love it at this level. You know, I don't have to do a TV show. I don't have to do a radio show. I don't have to do booster dinners every night. You know, I've done that at UNLV. And now here, I just get to be in the foxhole with our guys. So usually you have that trust. But, you, you know, if the guy needs to say, I, I can't get this done. When you have the right guys, people aren't abusing it. They, they want to be a part of it. The mentality for us is that practice is a privilege. Weights are a privilege. You get to do it. You don't have to do mm -hmm. it. And if you're doing it for me, it's doing it for the wrong reason. And we just, you know, try to build this culture of, I'd tell them all the time, if my relationship with you is dependent upon your playing time, just tell me up front. And then we can already have that understanding. Right. Whereas my thing is between the lines is the business part of it. But the rest of it is a couple of human beings just trying to figure out a pretty crazy life. There's a little bigger picture of this whole thing that we're missed sometimes. So they think it's been really healthy, but guys don't take advantage of it. Guys used it for sure. But a lot of times that same guy's back the next day watching practice film, trying to get caught up because they know that trust factor is there. Sure. Coach, you also, because it was interesting, you mentioned about after the 12 to 3 practice, there's times where you'll have them go to like life skills. Can you explain just a little bit more what that is within your program? Different groups. We do it with different stuff. And really, it's just about the gaps that you talk about, like teaching guys how to communicate, teaching guys how to share about themselves or something simple like, here's how credit works. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, here's the gaps in education. You know, here's how you register to vote. Here's how you, you know, we're just brainstorming. Here's how you change a car tire. Sure. You know, here's, let's look at some practical life stuff that you would want someone you care about to know once they get in the real world. You know, I just think it's been good. And, you know, we talk about culture. We talk about winning. We talk about, you know, what guys want out of the experience, what they want out of college. What do you want out of relationships? We talk about girls. We talk about, I mean, you just go right down the list. It's amazing when, when people can talk to one another and you understand the shared experience that this whole thing is. And what ends up happening is guys find a lot of commonality amongst themselves, which ultimately helps you win and builds trust. But that's not the, really the real purpose for it. The, the purpose is genuine. You know, hey, these are 15 topics that you might benefit from, or here's a speaker that might be good for you to hear. Let's talk about how overseas basketball works. Here's someone that's played. You know, here's, let's talk about the horrors of this. Let's talk about the realities of this. And, and so we just try to give them different perspectives, and hopefully there's been some benefit. 
Coach, we'd like to shift now and talk a little bit about some tactical elements, especially with your half-court offense. And that's your thoughts on cutting rules versus flow, decision-making on using, you know, cutting within whatever you're going to do in the half-court. Our big theme in our offense is rim pressure. Yeah, so much about we want to dictate the terms of the game. There's no more helpless feeling as coach when you have somebody you just can't stop, that they can get to the rim or you can't keep somebody in front of you. It's one thing when someone's bombing a bunch of threes and you can test or, or start hugging or adjust. But I've always felt like that feeling where you have someone that just you can't stop them. And for us, you know, that kind of goes back to that rim pressure. I think that's the whole game. I think that's a big piece of what we do. And so we've just kind of devised like our system around that. You know, we have a lot of stuff that empties out the rim because we have hard drivers. You know, we're, I think we were third in the nation in getting the free throw line last year. Because, you know, that's a big part of what we do because it also allows us to press off of free throws. It allows us to get free throw rebounding. It allows us to take a little breaks. So there's a ton of value to that. So building off of that, we had to figure out a way. Some of our best drivers were more necessarily our best shooters. And in modern basketball, if you can't shoot, all those bodies are sitting in the paint. You know, and a few years ago, we really struggled to shoot. And I printed off the screenshot of teams literally almost with five guys in the midline and all of our guys running offense, running around with nobody guarding. And yeah. I said, no, that's not it. And so we've kind of evolved, not trying to give up too much on the defensive end of the floor, but be able to score. An NBA friend, he's like, well, if you enjoy X's and O's and tinkering and why'd you assemble this team of non-shooters and no way guards anybody like doesn't make any sense it was so simple but it just kind of dawned on me and my stubbornness on the toughness and defense on the floor was really making this less enjoyable for me and so now we've had shooters more offensively skilled players and it's been a lot of fun you know last year we saw the benefit of it but we still need to accommodate players that maybe the opponent won't hug on that perimeter and so we said okay here's kind of some rules and some things that we're going to do that are going to be triggers we call them in our in our offense and it's really a rim pressure motion type of deal for example if we dribble baseline if we're cut off or we can't get a good two-foot finish we're always flipping it to a post any of our guards you know and it's just kind of a signature of what we do and we'll split on the strong side and we always have our non-shooter 45 cut or cut out of the corner and bring the defense down. Now we got our shooters in the perimeter and we've made that defender have to guard us, you know, or if we're in a middle ball screen coming at the pair side, we're always going to have an action with that pair side. And if it's a non-shooter, you know, some guys are designated shooters. They're always staying out, you know, and that guy's not 45 cutting, but maybe the other guy's going to flare them or the non-shooter is always rim cutting to clear out that gap. You know, middle drive, we want to pick it up off two in the high paint. We don't want to just get deep paint. We really embrace the high paint. That's a big deal. Paint touches is something in one of our major measures. So getting that high paint, getting off two and pivoting, and we know we got to fill behind. We know we're going to get a rim cut. You know, we know if the big is in, he's going to get us a duck in. Yeah. You know, there's certain things that really have adopted, say, from Vance Wahlberg's dribble drive and some things that we've adopted from Princeton concepts. You know, some things we've, you know, we've kind of just made it our own and just said, hey, these are our triggers. If this happens, here's what's going to happen for us. And all of a sudden, as more we start cutting, the more we start scoring and guys started embracing it. So now we really work on it and uh, rejecting. We set a elbow feed and we split out of the corner one guy's going to the rim, right. you know, always, you know, if we screen away, one guy's going to the rim or we set a double away. You know, we, a lot of times that first guy is going to curl it to the rim and we'll bring the second guy off. You know, we always want something going to the rim to make that defense honor that we feel like that pressure sucks the defense in and that's, what's going to give us more open looks and create closeouts. Coach on those splits and those screens away, who has the first right to decide? Or are they reading each other? Are you telling them it's the guy receiving the screen? How do you kind of dictate the cutting and who's going to the rim or who's reading who? But like on a post speed, we'll usually have it. It's the man at speed in the post will be the screen away guy, mm -hmm. you know, but sometimes it'll, it'll look different because if he's screening away for one of our cutters, Sometimes that guy's going to reject the screen because that's his job. Yeah. And it kind of goes by player more than necessarily who it is. But he might reject that screen and then we'll split with the next guy. But a lot of times it's the feeder that's the screener in that situation. But if we're, you know, on our initial offense and we're just playing in our flow, you know, we might hit that elbow and our point can screen to that wing. He can go, you know, to the opposite high X. We can go to the opposite corner. You know, it's going to look like a whole bunch of stuff. Then he's just making a read. 
you know, for example, yesterday we're working on our elbow splits on the weak side. You know, we're sprinting that back up, sprint that tight curl it to the rim, sprint that come off it, you know, dribble handoff or give it to the second guy. You know, so we're working on all those reasons saying, hey, if your defender shows here, you pop back. If your defender does. And so we're just teaching reads. Mm-hmm. And then that adds a randomness to the offense. You know, it's really our deals more concepts and then they kind of put it all together. But that's really it. Like if he goes to the corner and that guy comes off of it, you know, he knows that he's going to have to be the rim cutter. Yeah. Or if this guy tight curls it to the rim, now I'm popping back for the three and I'm coming off it. So there's a randomness to it, but they also kind of know just some very simple rules. With a 45 cut or a curl, any cut that takes a guy to the rim, what do you teach the rim cutter after he's completed his cut, understanding where to go next, either fill the opposite corner, come back to the same side corner? I guess, what do you teach after the completion of a cut? We want to go opposite corner every time. Okay. Because most of our stuff goes into our, you know, C action continuity, which a lot of some of the Euro ball screen motion stuff, you know, to those deals. But we always want to get to the opposite corner. And we define that corner as basically block and lower. You got to touch that block. You can't cheat it because it's going to blow up our spacing. And and so we really work on that. And we work on that quick exit, you know, because that ball might be coming back to you quick. Because once we get in our continuity, you know, we just make simple rules on the three-man side that middle guys is back cutting again. Now you might be coming off of it again. Now it's an open side ball screen. You know, we're just trying to get to advantage ball screens. At the end of the day, that's the majority of what it is. Or we're trying to get either advantage ball screens or a no-help dribble drive. Yeah. You know, and those are the end game of a lot of our actions and a lot of the five-out stuff that we're doing. With the dribble drive and keeping your spacing, with guys always rim cutting, potentially kind of cutting into areas where maybe you want dribble drive action, are there also cuts within your offense that aren't rim cuts that are also helpful, say a brush cut or just like a replacement cut that you use to still clear space, but it's not always rim pressure? Yeah, there's no question. So probably we had to have led the nation in guard-to-guard ball screens. We set a ton of guard-to-guard ball screens. We set a million ball screens, but we had three illegal screens on the year last season and two were in garbage time our ghost is basically slipping the screen to the arc our slip is slipping it to the rim okay and a majority of our screening action we want the reject see if the rejects there number one number two we don't set very many screens we run a hundred million ball screen offense without actually setting the screens <laughs> now this year will be a little different our personnel is a little bit different but a lot of times what we're doing is we're just getting to the point of the attack create a little indecision yep. and then we throw back or we get a mismatch we have a rocket of a guard that's very physical and there's not very many guys that can defend him. So if we can get a switch, we know that we're going to get what we want. He shot 57% as a point guard from the floor. Or if you mess up the switch, we know that one of those shooters is going to get a catch-and-shoot shot. With our bigs, kind of the same deal. We, we slipped out a lot of the stuff because you can't go under it, you know, especially with our guard who people would like to go under on. We started slipping stuff before the screen was even set. All of a sudden, it just gives them a little bit of space. And, you know, with a little bit of space, your beat. Yep. So we kind of created what we needed in that regards. But those slips and those ghosts are part of um, nearly, I'd probably say 80% of our sets have some sort of built-in slip or a pin down to a ghost, to a flare, you know, to a slip. Sure. You know, a lot of our stuff will include all four of those things in a very simple way. But those cuts are a huge part of our offense. Coach, one follow-up I have is cutting around the pick and roll. And, you know, you mentioned when they're going to the two-man side, you may 45 or you may flare depending on where your non-shooter is. What is the timing you're telling those two guys as far as when to do the action or when to cut or when to screen? Yeah, like, so if we're like in a slot ball screen, because a lot of plays break down and you end up getting the middle ball screen or slot ball screen. And if we're going at, if the pair side is on the weak side, you know, that's pretty easy. You're going to have that whole alley open. You're headed toward and that's great. But when sometimes it's not that clean and you might get a ball screen going toward the two-man side, and we're okay with that. And and that's where our read is we want to afford, we want to give that alley so that that guy needs to string out that ball screen, a couple dribbles that he's not running into that top help defender. So our deal is as soon as he crosses that shoulders of the screen, we want that 45 cut or we want the pin down. Or if that's a shooter sitting in that spot, let's flare him to the corner. And then the flare guy can 45 cut Mm -hmm. off the flare. I mean, it's very simple, right? You're just doing one of those three things. And, you know, usually most stuff in our offense, I can tell, you know, guys, is like if you can count to three and remember three things, 
you're going to be okay. You would just remember, just do one of the three. You're probably not screwing it up. Sure. Cause the randomness turns out to be part of the beauty of what it is. And some guys only do the same thing over and over and over. And I'm okay with it. I'm like, yeah, that guy's, I know hundred percent. If he's standing right there, he's just going to set a pin down every time. That's okay. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because the next guy that comes in, I know that he's just going to set a flare every single time. <laughs> That's okay. Because it adds a little randomness when all of a sudden you start switching sides or subbing and, and all that good stuff. So that's kind of our read is when they cross shoulders. We're going to transition now into a segment we call start, sub, or sit. So we're going to give you three basketball topics, ask you to start one, sub one, and then sit one. And we'll have a little discussion from there. So coach, if you're ready, we'll dive in. I'm ready. Okay. (laughs) Well, you did mention paint touches a few minutes ago, and we're going to revisit that in this first start, sub, sit. So this is, in your opinion, the best type of paint touch you could get. So start, sub, or sit these three different ways the ball can kind of get into the middle of the floor on a paint touch off of a drive, a downhill drive into the paint off of a post catch or an offensive rebound. I'm going to start with the dribble drive, sub with the offensive rebound, and I'll sit the post touch. Okay. The one that really interests me was your thoughts on offensive rebounding and sort of going back, I guess, to establishing identity and tacking and rim pressure. How do you build offensive rebounding into sort of like another part of your half-court offense? We've had great offensive rebounding numbers over the years. We do zero rebounding drills. We don't work on free throws and we don't work on rebounds, but we built it as part of our culture and we just chart it. So we'll teach guys, okay, here's a few methods. So it's not truly true, but we'll teach guys, hey, here's where you're getting to. Your job is to get to the front of the rim. Your job is to get to the weak side. Ball shot from here, it's going over here. Just do it every single time. And we chart it. You know, instead of saying, okay, let's run a whole bunch of drills and beat the heck out of each other, let's just chart it. And if you don't do it, you're going to get got. So we just do it that way. So we've become fanatical about it. And every possession, there's at least one coach saying, you didn't go. You're supposed to go. You didn't go. Or you didn't get back. And transition defense is tied to it. And, and so we're just fanatical about it on every single play. And guys get tired of hearing it until they just start going. They ultimately all break and just start doing their job and going sure. and become the bloodbath. And then you become a really good defensive rebounding team because if you don't block out Mason Fawcett, he's going to get every single offensive rebound. Yep. And it carries over the game. So that's been numerically a big advantage for us. Do you limit how many guys you want going to the offensive glass? So if you had four good offensive rebounders, would you say all four go? Yep. You have a job. So I just try to make our get backs and our rebounding very specific. We have, I think maybe one, maybe two guys in the roster that have the ability to crash, but you know, if we need to get an extra guy back, you can recognize it. The rest of the guys, you have one job. You're always a crash guy, no matter what. You're always a get back guy, no matter what. A lot of times we're only crashing two because we think we can get there with two. It's also a little deceiving because we have such hard drivers on the perimeter that John Knight or Tevian Jones is going to be around the rim a lot. So it really turns into three even though those are get-back guys. But if they're finishing in the paint, they're in the paint. And so we really say three back, but we also have a young man in practice that's a, a wing that just is fanatical about offense rebounding. So it's like, okay, he's the exception to the rule. If he's on the floor, he's going because he's earned that right. And we'd be stupid not to. You know, it's kind of like when we were at UNLV, we had Derek Jones. We were a three-back team. But you tell Derek Jones when he's playing the three to get back, that takes the spirit of who he is away from him because he is fantastic at finding that ball. So to me, I just started doing it by player instead of by position. You three guys are ball stoppers. You three guys are, are deep in the hole. Your job is only the offensive rebound. You're always an offensive rebound. Now there's no debate about it. Your offensive rebounding offense. So, you know, unless it's a putback dunk or an easy offensive rebound and, and finish, what's the offensive flow after someone, say, gets an offensive board and you want the ball either reversed or then it's a short shot clock? What are the concepts you play through after an offensive rebound? We tell them if you get an offensive rebound, you can do whatever you want with it. Okay. And, you know, most of the guys aren't silly. They're not trying to go in there and get the shot blocked. But a lot of times what you'll see, if they go dig a ball out in the paint, and they go back up with it. A lot of times that defense isn't in position and they end up drawing a foul. We're also unselfish enough where guys are back on the arc. You know, a lot of times we don't get that kick out three necessarily a lot. We'll occasionally will, but a lot of times that offense rebounds come. We're so fanatical about transition defense that all those guards are already back. But I would rather, I'll make the trade off. If you get an offensive rebound, you get to be selfish. You can do whatever you want. You earn that ball. So if you want to go fire it back up there, uh, have at it. Okay. 
So it's just, that's their perk. Sure. They got it. You get to use it. Coach, really fast before we move on to the next one, you started a dribble paint touch, getting to the point off a dribble, and you sat getting to the paint off of a post catch. I'm just maybe wondering why there was a difference in your mind between those two so much. Namely, for the post-catch, I feel like the defense is kind of set. I feel like on a dribble drive, you might get someone to help out of a corner. Mm -hmm. You might get that big to lean over and worry about, okay, I see his numbers. I got to help a little bit. You're creating some rotations. Whereas on the post-touch, yeah, you might get some shrinkage, but the next action is going to cause the reaction. Yeah. You know, our 45 cuts and the splits. So it's just different. We get a ton of post-ups based on our dribble drive. We do everything off two. We've eliminated mid-range jumpers We other than late clock. We've eliminated one-leg finishes in the paint in traffic. But so we've kind of streamlined. Mm-hmm. We're really going back to the Michigan factory roots. Henry Ford <laughs> built a better way to work on you know specialization. That's kind of what we've tried to do is just let's specialize in certain things that are us and not worry about working on the rest. And so that for us is good. But now we will post. We post our guards a lot. We will, we have a big now that we, we love that we'll post a lot. We have a 6'2 kid that is unstoppable on the post right now. And we're just going to figure out a way to use him. So we'll do some stuff on the post. I'm not on the team of hating post-ups. Sure. Okay. Yeah. yeah put that way. <laughs> but, yeah. but we only gave you those options and you had to, you were yeah. nice yeah, enough to play go. our game. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Coach, hey, sorry, you keep dropping great stuff, so I got to follow up. Why two leg finishes over one leg finishes? You have no options on one leg. And I just believe in the bigger level game, especially in traffic. Our deal is this. If you have a shoulder and hip advantage on your defender and there's no help, have at it with the one leg finish. Does that happen very often? Not really. So on the half court, it's always going to be in traffic. So I want to get on two. That gives you an opportunity to get fouled the opportunity to have more options to pivot, you know, to dump off. You can change your mind off two. Once you go off of one, there ain't no change in your mind. It's going up. Off two puts you in better position for rebounding, puts you in better position for transition defense. One leg finishes, you see that guy end up in the first row or on his butt or up against the pad all the time, and all of a sudden it's five on four the other way. We just love that. I just think the toughness of going off two in traffic, it sure. just collapses a defense. With two foot finishes, what do you feel you you find yourself teaching more? The floater, the pivots, the pump fakes? Yeah, everything. We have a whole series of 12 to 20 finishes. You know, we'll go we'll come from the wing, we'll hop middle, we'll hop baseline, we'll pivot middle, pivot baseline, pivot, 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 you know, shot fake, you know, ball fake. We'll work on it all. I like floaters. You know, a lot of people are anti-floater. I like floaters, not only the one leg floater, but, you know, off two. Mm-hmm where it turns into kind of like a leaning jumper. As long as your body weight's going to the rim, I like it. And we'll work on that from 15 feet in. Guys like Nigel Williams-Goss and some of these guys just perfected that shot. Mm-hmm. I think it puts a lot of pressure on a defense in that high paint. We've kind of just said, here's who we are, who's who we're not. And it's been efficient for us. All right, Coach. Our next start subset for you is dealing with the ice coverage. The three things for start subset are what your points of emphasis or what is going to concern you more that you do right being physical with the ball or maintaining contact the angle of the feet on the ice or the depth of the big and the drop coverage or the ice coverage yeah so we down everything on the sides so you know we go against it every day in practice for us offensively as soon as that guard gets on your high side we want to keep that guy up there you know we want to kind of put him in jail now you're out of the play you know, let's turn this into a five on four. But we also want to attack that big. We don't want to get pinned on that sideline. And we just work on making sure that we're off that sideline. And if you can get these ball screens just high enough, we think we can drive that big down to that baseline and turn a corner, you know, or we think we can drive that big, keep that, you know, the guard on our hip, you know, get middle, or we drive in baseline, pull two guys almost to the corner of the floor, throw back. Then we're going ahead and playing four on three as quick as we can get it to the other side of the floor. So we have a few things that those are kind of our points of emphasis against it. But, you know, we go against it so much that we feel good about it when we see it, you know, because we have a whole bunch of stuff we can throw back. We pop that big throw back right in back into a dribble handoff is impossible to guard. You know, getting it to the other side is a big point of emphasis, though. We just want to get it over there and let's take advantage of the four on three that we have on the other side of the floor and see what happens. So that's been successful for us. And coach, I think with this, we're thinking on the defensive side yep. of the ball. Like, you know, when you're teaching the drop or the ice coverage, yep. what do you emphasize most? Is it the contact with the ball handler? It is. It is the contact. We have to be right on that hip. 
the guy's got to sit on that high leg and not he can't get over the top. It's just a non-negotiable. That has put the trust now in the big. It's all kind of tied together. But that big has to be low and wide, seven feet wide up to that screen and funnel him down to that short corner at the very worst. But having that guard contact, if that guard has space, it's going to be too easy to throw back. It's going to be too easy to get that pocket pass or split. So number one, it has to be that contact. Number two, that big has to be low and wide. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll trap a lot of it. A lot of times, like we get them there on that sideline. There'll be certain teams that we see playing that sideline. We're going to ice it and trap it. You know, just pin them right up against the sideline. Sure. And treat it as a full trap. That's been successful for us as well. Coach, what is kind of the responsibility you're teaching with the guard? Is it just take away him going middle? And when the guard maybe then starts to attack towards the baseline, what do you want the defending guard to do? He has to keep it down. He has to keep him in it until that big leaves. Okay. So if that screener kind of pauses and waits, you know, he's got to keep that guard down until that offensive big departs. And then he's got to get back in front and get that, let our big recover and go home, which is a little bit of an art to it. Yeah. But we try to use that trigger of if that screener's still there or he's slow getting out of the screen, you have to stay on top of it. You have to stay there. And we're teaching tight on that top leg, but we want high hands because we don't want that simple hook pass back to a, a popping big, you know, and then we're pulling that weak side. We're saying, hey, if we got you on the sideline, we're going to bring that weak side way over. We don't think they can make that skip pass again out of that ice. So we'll load the whole defense on that side of the floor and almost treat it like a little bit of a trap. Coach, I seen on the side, you're like we're talking about being able to maybe trap or keep it on a side. How about in the middle third of the floor, a middle ball screen? Do the same concepts apply for you? We're unique. We try to force everything that we can. Okay. So we'll left everything in the middle. I'm a big one way, but then we'll do stuff scout specific. We'll send a lot of stuff left there and you always know where the tag's coming from. But we'll also trap a lot. We'll send it left and trap it mm-hmm. with our big. And we'll send that big before the screen even gets there sometime. We'll change it up. Sometimes they'll be at the point of the screen, then trap. Sometimes it's like as soon as that big goes, just leave them and just let's go get them force into the half court we're trying to dictate the terms okay that's our whole deal let's just dictate the terms make them make an adjustment and then we'll make our adjustment from there and play that game but instead of just kind of reading what the offense does we'd rather just kind of do it our way and be aggressive with it so coach we got one more for you here the next start sub or sit and i know you've played one season with it but a lot of the rest of the country now at least at the college game is going to be playing with the international line so with the three-point line moved back from where it was two years ago so start sub or sit with the line moving back things that maybe you would be most concerned about when you're thinking about the line being at a greater distance your shooters you know working on them being able to continue to shoot a higher percentage or a good percentage from three defensive lane coverages so whether or not you need to apply more coverage out to the three-point line or be more in gaps or how you handle closeouts to the three-point line shorter distances or keep it all the same i would start closeouts i would sub probably the lanes and sitting the the shooters okay the biggest thing for us you know is just the closeouts i like the new line i would even go to a universal deal i love this get everybody on the same page across all basketball, you know, whether it's quarters or whatever rules. Sure. But I like it for spacing purposes offensively. We're okay with our shooters getting out there. Our quality shooters shoot 23, 24 feet. That's fine if they can make it. I think it stretches the defense. So the shooters, I'm not as worried about. You know, that's just reps. And, you know, really you find if you recruit shooters, it's amazing. They make shots. <laughs> right. <laughs> so <laughs> so you, you can figure out ways to remedy that. But the closeouts, you know, are a concern because, you know, the, the big sky particularly is a, a fantastic shooting league year in, year out. You know, so a huge emphasis of our defense is to not give up three to, you know, what we deem a sniper. So those closeouts just become a little bit longer and we got to be a little bit more disciplined, making sure we get high hands otherwise you get spread out a little bit and so that's probably our big priority we try to really limit threes as one of our non-negotiables defensively with the three-point line move back and i know you played with it for a year did you notice any differences in like being able to apply ball pressure you want because you know harder to kind of keep guys out of gaps if you are sort of in denial one pass away i didn't think it would have a huge impact i thought that you know extra foot would be whatever yeah i was wrong <laughs> I think you saw a lot of guys can't move back a foot and make that shot anymore at a high rate. You know, to me, right. if you're not shooting 35, you're not a great shooter from there. You know, it's just what it is. You saw a little bit of that. I think it's harder to play non-shooters. I think that's what we found. We said there's we'll never put more than two non-shooters on the floor ever again, hopefully in my career. <laughs> yeah. You said, because you can't. 
because the shooters, they make your drivers that much more effective. You know, they really turn a guy that maybe is a seven out of 10 effectiveness in office and do a 10 out of 10 by just being hugged in the corner. You know, so those guys make everything better, you know? And so I think that's become even more important to have those shooters because it creates more spacing for your drivers. Coach, my follow-up is just with the closeout quickly. I think there's a lot of just debate or talk about how to teach them. And I know you mentioned kind of the high hand. So what other rules or not enough rules is the right word, but what are you telling your guys on closeouts? I think shooters have gotten so good that the NBA flybys, you know, they kind of become in vogue, the run guys off the line. We've gone completely away from it. And we were teaching that a lot. Shooters can sidestep now and, and they work on that shot to a degree where it's the game is it's adjusted to the adjustment on closeout. So to me, that's not effective anymore. So we're back to the two hands high, take away vision, close out to the five head, which is right above the forehead. Okay. We're really just, so let's just take away vision and keep them in front and be ready to sit. But we're not trying to run guys off. We're not trying to do all that. Our defensive position, we're a gap team. We should be there anyway. And if they just make a bunch of shots, you know, some guys can shoot over length. Hopefully we're long enough through our recruiting and in our athleticism that it's still difficult enough that we can just be second man off the floor and still take away that vision. Coach, you're off the start, sub, sit, hot seat. Thanks for going through those scenarios. That was a lot of fun. We got one more question for you before we close. Uh, before we do, again, thank you for your time this morning. I know you're on a recruiting trip. We appreciate you spending some time with us. So thank you. Oh, thanks for having me. No, this is great. Anytime we can talk hoops, this is the best. Coach, it's a question we ask many of the guests to close here. And over the course of your career in coaching, what have you considered to be the best investment that you've made? Ooh, great question. Honestly, I was very fortunate to have a little period when I was a little bit younger to go to a lot of practices, whether it's Ben Hollins or Tom Izzo or Henry Bibby or you name it, just, just making the tour of seeing all different ways to skin a cat. And then I was very fortunate at Finley Prep, you know, for seven years, we had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of coaches come through. And we used to joke, we, I call it taking taxes, <laughs> you know, guys coming in the office, I'm, we're going to, you know, guys have a three by five note cards and, you know, go to lunch with a Larry Brown or a Tim Floyd or, or Sean Miller or whoever it is. We're leaving there with some nuggets. Every day was like a clinic. And I really enjoyed that. That's probably the best investment I made as a, and from a coaching standpoint is I think, I mean, I still refer back to a lot of these conversations. You know, when we talk about, for example, attacking ice coverage, I remember sitting with Larry Brown on that, just for example, and he was talking about that. And I was like, okay, this took three things I didn't even think about, you know, and that was from a conversation when he was at SMU in 2010, yeah. you know, you, so that investment and that having that opportunity, we're unique, where uh, we had all those recruitable players, but that was probably the best thing I did from our, our career standpoint, because it was a master's level course every day on different topics. I mean, you could just start talking X and O's and get the sugar packets out and, and doing all that. So I would say I'd point to that as something that was really influential and being able to build a basketball thought process. Thank you so much for listening to this episode with Coach Todd Simon. Please make sure to visit slappingglass.com for more information on Slapping Glass Plus, the free newsletter, videos, and much, much more. Have a great week, Coach, and we'll see you next time on Slapping Glass. Thank you.